From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. But because Apple really does, according to the court, exert a lot of control over developers, this judge decided that these contracts between Apple and developers aren't really agreements in the antitrust sense. She kind of viewed it as instead Apple imposing its will on developers. So she said, even though this might be a contract for contract law purposes, it's not an agreement for antitrust law purposes. Welcome back to season seven of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. A federal judge recently ruled in the antitrust case brought by Fortnite game maker Epic against financial rules with the Apple App Store. Antitrust expert and former attorney in the U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division, John Newman, picks up the controller. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Hey, good morning, John. Nice to have you back. It's nice to be back. Um, Let's start with a quick rundown on Judge Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers' ruling in Epic Games versus Apple. Initially, it didn't seem like a clear victory for either. Apple's stock took a dip. Epic's company shares were rising following the decision. So can you break it down for us? Yeah, so both sides did win some arguments and lose some others. Uh, As to the antitrust claims, I think it's fair to say that Apple came out ahead overall. Uh, Most of Epic's antitrust claims got dismissed, except for this one state law antitrust claim that we can talk about a little bit more um, later on. But just at a high level, you know, Epic argued that Apple unfairly prevents users from downloading apps directly onto their phones or tablets. Um, You know, they were arguing that Apple has, has basically taken illegal steps to make its app store the only game in town for iPhone and iPad users. And it also argued that Apple was unfairly forcing developers like Epic to use Apple's super expensive uh, payment processing service instead of cheaper alternatives that are available. So really, Epic was was going for broke. They were trying to get a huge resounding victory that would really open up the the app ecosystem on iPhones and iPads. And and they didn't get that. Um, This case did also involve a breach of contract claim. Uh, from Apple against Epic. And on that, Apple came out a clear winner. Uh, and so the judge you know, looked at the facts and said, yeah, Epic, you did stop uh, <laughs> using Apple's payment processor and start using a different one. And your contract you know, pro- prohibited you from doing that. So the judge also ordered uh, Epic to pay Apple somewhere north of $4 million. So yeah, I think overall, it's fair to say that, that Apple came out ahead here. So... Yes, we can agree that it was more of a, a win for Apple, but th- does that not mean, or does that mean, so it's, it, when we talk about a monopoly, so the judge found that Apple was not a monopoly, but mm, Apple's kind of on the edge of being a monopoly, maybe? Like, did the epic battle, like, expose some some fissures in Apple's skin? Yeah, I think the court, you know, did find that Apple does have a fair amount, uh, a fairly sizable market share and concluded that they do wield a fair amount of market power. It hasn't quite leveled up, if you will, to monopoly status. Um, But if the trend, you know, of Apple's growth continues, then at some point in the not too distant future, it's very possible that under the judge's way of looking at things, Apple could be uh, qualified as a monopolist. 
So I'm guessing Apple was not especially thrilled about that part of the decision. Right. So could Epic go back and get a, a terrible cliche, another bite at the Apple? <laughs> uh, you know, I think they'd probably have to come up with a somewhat different theory of the case overall. But even if Epic can't come back and relitigate this particular claim, that's not to say that another app developer or some other um, injured party couldn't bring a case. Um. Okay, kids, this will be on the test. How did Apple's challenge meet or not meet the traditional requirements of an anti of antitrust claims under the Sherman Act? I know you folks love to talk about the Sherman Act. <laughs> hey, it's our favorite statute. So Epic had two main federal antitrust theories. These were brought under the, the Sherman Act, which is a federal statute. And the first one was basically, in a nutshell, uh, that Apple had monopolized um, the market here. And this is where the court noted that you know, if you have a market share that's below around 60% or so, it's pretty rare that you'll be called a monopolist by a court. You know, once you get below that threshold, it's just very rare. And, and the court calculated a Apple's share at somewhere around 55%. So that's close to that threshold, like we said, but it's just not into traditional monopoly territory. So it's high, but not high enough. And that's pretty much what doomed the, the monopoly claim under the Sherman Act. But Epic had a second claim, and this one was interesting. Their, their theory here was that Apple's contracts with developers, like Epic, constitute agreements in restraint of trade. And that's section one of the Sherman Act. It covers agreements that, that restrain trade unreasonably. This is where things get a little technical, but because Apple really does, according to the court, exert a lot of control over developers, this judge decided that these contracts between Apple and developers aren't really agreements in the antitrust sense. And she kind of viewed it as instead Apple imposing its will on developers. So she said, even though this might be a contract for contract law purposes, it's not an agreement for antitrust law purposes. And it was kind of an odd holding. It's strange to look at a contract and say it's not an agreement, um, it, and, and even if antitrust law is obviously a little different than, than contracts. So I'd say that's a little bit legally questionable that holding, that may get appealed. So perhaps unsurprisingly, the judge went on to beef up the opinion a little bit here. And so she went on to say, if these were agreements, or even if they aren't, they do have some harmful effects. But she said, they also cause some good effects. In antitrust lingo, we'd call those pro-competitive justifications. So in particular, the court kind of bought Apple's argument that it needs to control this space pretty tightly because it needs to guard against um, security risks, malware, um, uh, and, and just objectionable content being uh, displayed on its users' iPhones and iPads. So all that said, uh, App, it's true that Epic lost on its federal antitrust claims, but we said earlier they did win on this one little state uh, antitrust claim, an unfair competition claim. Um, so this different sort of smaller battleground went better for Epic than the broader war it was trying to fight. Um, and so what the judge ordered here said, Apple, I'm going to leave your basic business model alone. But you can't stop developers from at least telling their users, hey, it's really expensive when you buy stuff through your iPhone on our app because Apple takes this 30% cut. So Basically, the judge said, I'm going to open up the, this line of communication between developers and their customers. And now they can tell their customers how expensive it is 
to use Apple. Um, and it could say, somebody like Epic could say, hey, we'll give you a discount if you jump over onto your Xbox or your PlayStation to buy this new Fortnite skin or weapon. So it's kind of an interesting uh, interesting victory, a small one, but you know, maybe, uh, maybe uh, uh, important down the road. So how does the the decision impact other litigation? For instance, the only thing that's sort of like it may be the Google Play Store? Well, I mean, that obviously remains to be seen. But I will say that, that Google seems to have a lower share of the market, however you define it, in the United States, um, as the judge defined it anyway, than, than Apple. So if Apple has 55%, we said earlier, of this market as this judge defined it, then it follows that Google really can't have more than 45% at the most. So again, we'll kind of see how this all plays out, but it does seem unlikely that this judge uh, would find that Google was a monopolist, given that it found that, that, that she found Apple was not a monopolist. Is this case done, has nowhere else to go, or can it go to a higher court? And did this decision change anything in the landscape of, of antitrust law? Is there any precedents here that will, you know, play into other kinds of litigation? Yeah, I think this was really a, a kind of a landmark decision. I think it will probably be appealed. And I think there are parts of the opinion that are questionable. We talked about one of them earlier. There are a few other ones that I could see meriting a review by a higher court. Uh, so this could go up to the Ninth Circuit. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see an appeal here. So this one may not be done, but even so, it's still a very interesting case. You know, in particular, the, the judge is holding that you can't stop developers from communicating with their customers, I think is a really interesting one. Um, these, these types of restrictions are in place in some other markets. For instance, uh, a, a merchant, like if you walk into a restaurant, say, their, their credit card company contracts put some limits on what they can tell you about, about their credit card costs. So these types of restrictions um, are in place in other markets, and, and maybe some of this reasoning could port over to those, those markets. So an interesting one. I think one to watch. I think it probably creates a little more pressure on legislatures if they feel like there's a problem here. If you're in Congress and you think this uh, this market isn't working very well, this case coming out for the defendant mostly puts a little more or more impetus behind legislative efforts. And we actually saw South Korea uh, pass a statute not too long ago that prohibited this exact type of conduct. So there's an example of a, of a legislature just doing what a court here refused to do. Right. And and I'm sorry, did I understand you to say that because the California legislature had those in place, that's what helped that one state part of the decision, correct? Yes. So California has a statute that prohibits unfair competition. That's worded a little bit more broadly than the Sherman Act, which prohibits specifically monopolization. And then, as we said, agreements and restraint of trade. So the fact that this state law was on the books and that it seemed to be a little broader, a little more flexible than the federal law, I think absolutely is, is the reason that Epic came away with from this with something, even if it wasn't the total victory they wanted. We can't let you go without. You were our guest in season five, episode two, and you said you had taken up playing Fortnite and you had gotten walloped by some nine-year-olds. Have you gotten any better? No, honestly, if anything, I've gotten worse. Uh, I, I think those kids have a lot more practice time on their hands than I do. But I did decide 
I should really challenge them to a game of Monopoly. I feel like I'd be a lot better at that. <laughs> Scrabble. <laughs> well, were you playing it on your flip phone? That might have been your problem. That doesn't help either. Uh, well, it's really good to talk to you. Thanks again for joining us. My pleasure. See you later. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's clinical training programs. Law students choose from 10 hands-on real-world clinics to gain practice and experience from immigration and human rights to healthcare and startup exposure. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash academics forward slash clinics.